Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Now, let's start with this story. I went back to 2015, and here's how it happened. I, was, I went on a search engine, and I was looking for Tim Horton's um, favorite brand in Canada or favorite brands in Canada. And I saw a, a news story from Global News, and I, I didn't look at the date. And it indicated that Tim Hortons was the number one trusted brand in this country. So I knew the date had to be a little bit out of whack for me, so I checked, and at the top of the story, it said 2015. And just a couple of weeks ago, you know that Tim Hortons had slipped to number four, and now they're at number 50. That is a huge drop for any company. And some people will argue it's because of the minimum wage issue that some of the franchisees were saying that they were going to cut the benefits of, uh, of, of employees as far as minimum wage was concerned if the uh, minimum wage went to 14 an hour as when mandated. And others will tell you it has, something, uh, it has nothing to do with that at all. But the franchisees are suing the hedge fund company from... Uh, from Brazil, which owns Tim Hortons, and uh, the hedge fund company is suing some franchisees. And there's a question, the franchisees are suggesting that maybe there was something not quite right about Tim Hortons' takeover by uh, RBI, Restaurant Brands International, from Brazil in 2014. And RBI has advised a popular and a successful Toronto franchisee, Mark Cusiora, that one of his two Toronto stores will be sold to new owners. This is not a very happy relationship. Ned Levitt is a specialist in franchise law. He joins us from Toronto on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. That really doesn't sound like a like a symbiotic kumbaya crowd, doesn't it? Doesn't Ned? No, not very much, Roy. Not at all. So what do how do you read what's going on? You've got you've got the, the, the franchisee or some of the franchisees suing the franchisor and the franchisor suing franchisees and then taking away a franchise from a very popular member. What's, what's going on? What's the, what's the tea leaves? What are the tea leaves telling you? <laughs> well, the first obvious thing is that they're getting a terrible amount of horrible publicity, which can't possibly be helping anybody, not the franchisees and not the uh, franchisor either. So um, disputes arise, even in franchising, but it's a question of how long do you let them smolder, if not flame, before you sit down at a, at a negotiating table and, and settle something like this. You know, I was looking at, um, at that story from 2014, and the class action lawsuit um, that has been raised against and launched against RBI, they're accusing RBI of directing $700 million of a national advertising campaign to itself and not what it was supposedly be doing. 
How rare is it for, for this kind of development to take place, particularly given the the seriousness of the brand, well, it's a serious to Canada, to, 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 the, uh, to the Brazilian hedge fund, it's probably not all that serious, because Canada is not one of their biggest markets, I would think. Mm-hmm. Well, it is for Tim Hortons, of course. Yeah, well, yeah, for Hortons it is. But, <clears throat> look, um, you know, there was probably a lot of meetings in boardrooms uh, of the franchisor before they made the acquisition, and then planning what they're going to do after the acquisition. <clears throat> and, of course, everybody, every company is entitled to try to maximize their profits, minimize their costs. The problem arises is that in franchising, a franchisor starts doing things like that, it's going to have an impact on the franchisees. And um, <clears throat> I'm sure, absolutely sure, that uh, 3G, you know, the, the Brazilian company, hedge fund, uh, when they decided to make this acquisition, they didn't set about to, to hurt anybody particularly. But they, but it, from their reputation and what they're doing, they certainly set about to maximize their profits and therefore the share price. And in that, I think, is the heart of the issue here. Um, franchising is a relationship, actually a three-partnership relationship, um, franchisor, franchisee, and consuming public. Mm-hmm. And um, so in their strategy, in, they obviously thought what they were doing was legally right, I perhaps even morally right, but it was not taking, couldn't have been taken into account. These ramifications, or I'm sure somebody smart would have done something a little bit differently. So we're seeing fallout here, really uh, not because somebody's been targeted, but because of somebody worrying about their own self-interest more than anybody else that they affect. If you have a situation where you've got a, a whole country of uh, franchisees. Some of them may have two franchises, some may have more, many would have just one, and they've been in place for a long period of time, and they're accustomed to doing business a certain way. They may have done business with Ron Joyce at the very beginning. And and now the the, the, the entire thing changes. Is this always a rocky relationship uh, when, when, you have a, when you have a change of ownership and you have a diverse, large group of franchisees? Well, it, uh, always might be a little too strong, but there's no question that that is a time when if something's going to go wrong, it's more likely to be then. Um, I, you know, I've acted for many companies being sold, franchise companies, uh, those buying franchise companies. And the ones that do, that do it well and do it right are the ones that think about sort of the, the, <clears throat> the non-monetary consequences or, or, or the monetary consequences for anybody else in, in the piece. And uh, this is, so you, I would never say that this is going to be common, but in a takeover, and frankly, in a public franchisor, there is going to be a dynamic that creates the possibility of conflict. And that dynamic is that the uh, franchisor, if it's public or if it's going to be acquired, they're looking at the bottom line, they're looking at the share price. Franchisees are looking at their profitability at the store level. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're selling a, um, a brand, uh, when you're selling a uh, heritage brand to customers who identify with your brand, who in Canada didn't know what a double-double was? No one. I was talking to somebody in Australia not long ago, and that person said to me, when I come to Canada, I've been told to order a double-double. Yep. So it's, 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 it's Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you have that kind of heritage branding and you have a tremendously loyal consumer base, 
And in 2015, you're the number one brand in the country as far as consumers are concerned and believability is concerned and trust. And then you slip to number four. To me, that should probably send at least the first warnings. Mm -hmm. And then try, try not to make it into a tsunami where you end up number 50 and, uh, and news stories spilling out that there are lawsuits and counter lawsuits and franchisees not having their franchises uh, renewed. That is not, not a good optic. So I would think that the, uh, the ball certainly was dropped uh, maybe in a number of a number of ways. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. Global news story from uh, yesterday: the federal government is looking into concerns raised by a dissident group of Tim Hortons franchisees about the potential violation of terms Ottawa placed on a deal that saw Canada's most iconic restaurant chain taken over by a Brazilian firm. A spokesman for Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines said Thursday the government will investigate allegations that Tim's owner, Restaurant Brands International, has failed to live up to promises made to the federal government under the Investment Canada Act in 2014. I think it's important to Canadians that our iconic brands are Canadian and we can identify with them and we don't run into situations like the one we're facing now, or Tim Hortons is facing now. And I've heard people talk about the coffee as well. Anyway, it's 800-263-2428. 800-263-2428. After I finish speaking with Ned Levitt, franchise lawyer in Canada, one of the very best, we will uh, we'll take your phone calls. What is the most common, Ned, what's the most common uh, situation that you would face as far as dealing with representing a franchisee is concerned? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be just sort of one most common, because it's hard to rank them, but very often uh, it's uh, the franchisor is not running the advertising fund effectively or occasionally is actually taking money from the advertising fund. We've mm -hmm. seen that a lot. Certainly things like not training the franchisees well enough or supporting them as you know, we're living in a time of very rapid change. So there's a lot more pressure on franchisors to be an agent of change and to be able to, uh, on behalf of the whole system, you know, find out what are the, the, the right products for the times or what are the right ways to deliver those products or how about social media. So these are the things that, that are often alleged in litigation is the franchisor didn't do something or did something they shouldn't be doing. And this situation that exists now between the franchisee and the franchisors at uh, Tim Hortons, let's just use Tim Hortons even though there's a parent company involved. I'll ask you again, is that something that is truly unusual or is it noteworthy because of the importance of the Tim Hortons brand to Canadians? No, I think it's noteworthy for a number of reasons. One is the, uh, the iconic uh, position that Tim Hortons occupies for sure. It was a very well-functioning franchise system prior to the takeover. And, um, and also the, I would say, aggressive approach that the, uh, the 3G company took when, when they acquired it. I mean, it, it, this is about as uh, issue-rich <laughs> and, and uh, aggressive uh, type of litigation that I've actually seen in my career. Uh, there's a, a lot of bad feelings, bad blood between the parties. Uh, and uh, some pretty obvious attempts to, um, you know, make money 
uh, for the franchisor. And, uh, and the franchisees are looking at their livelihoods and believe they're threatened. Because, you know, this litigation couldn't have been entered into lightly because you, when you hurt the brand in a franchise system, you're hurting it for the franchisor, but you're hurting it for the franchisee. Mm-hmm. Well. Mm-hmm. And they have their lives, often have their life savings invested Absolutely. and tied up in that particular franchise. Actually, with Tim Hortons franchises, uh, there's a lot of examples of successions already. I mean, yeah, yeah that's true. a long time. Ned, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Good talking to you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks. Ned Lovett is a franchise lawyer in Toronto. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, the Prime Minister will fly back from Peru, and he's going to be having a meeting with the premiers of British Columbia and Alberta on the issue of pipelines. It seems to me that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau should probably also have invited the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, to these discussions because Premier Moe has made it very clear to British Columbia that Saskatchewan also has an interest in this particular situation and not to expect Saskatchewan to simply sit on the sidelines. Prime Minister has an opportunity, a responsibility, and I really believe Saskatchewan needs to be included in this discussion. We'll talk a lot about Tomorrow, and uh, we'll take lots of phone calls, actually tomorrow, on this issue. Joining me on the program is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe. Premier, thank you for the time. Congratulations on uh, on your new responsibilities, and we always enjoyed speaking with your predecessor, Mr. Wall. I'm looking forward to conversations with you. I am as well, Roy, and thank you for having us here today. Everyone in this country is still reeling over the terrible bus truck accident that resulted in so much death and injury within the ranks of the Humboldt Broncos. What uh, what can you share with us, Premier, about uh, the developments now? And somebody asked me a question. I've actually seen it several times. Is Saskatchewan uh, does Saskatchewan Healthcare take care of the the needs of of those who were injured, even if they're not uh, residents of Saskatchewan? I would have to check on on individuals that are living outside of the provinces. We have, uh, you know, healthcare across the nation that is very, very similar in many, in many ways. And I, I would have to check on exactly um, how, how that works with individuals that are from other areas of Canada and then um, ultimately move back uh, to those areas. But uh, you know, I, I think uh, more specific to what we've experienced in this in this province and and. And I think it's fair to say in this nation uh, over this past week and a day now, uh, or a week and a day ago, has uh, just been something that has been unforeseen and unimagin- unimaginable uh, in the scope and, and, the, uh, and the severity of, of what we've seen. We've seen, you know, 16 young leaders mm-hmm. uh, pass away in Western Canada here. And, and uh, now we see a community and a league uh, picking up uh, the pieces and, and going back to work this evening. I think they're, they're starting with the, the, the uh, finals for the Canalto Cup this evening in Nippon. You know, for, uh, for th- there's really nothing other than that, I think, for them to do. They have to pick up the pieces. They have to once again get back to living. We all are living with heartbreak over the loss, but there's, there's still living to be done. And I'm sure that the families and uh, and those who were uh, on that bus would, would agree with that. Yeah, and I would I would as well. It, it's as tough as it is, um, and these aren't things that you get over. These aren't things no. that, that go away. But uh, 
you don't get, I, I think someone had mentioned uh, at the vigil the other night, uh, last Sunday evening in Humboldt, that you don't get over this, um, but you need you do need to get through it. Yes. And uh, so we're going to have a, a number of boys, uh, young men, lacing up their skates here this evening, and I'm going over to Nippon to watch the game, and, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that, that my presence and everyone else's presence uh, just indicates to those boys that when they're lacing up their skates and putting on their equipment here this evening, they're not in that dressing room alone. The, nope. the whole we'll, province is with them. And the whole country will be there in spirit. I'm sure, uh, for sure. Premier, uh, would you speak please to the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension battle? Now, it's between British Columbia and Alberta initially, but laterally also has included Saskatchewan, because you've uh, you, your government's made it very clear to Premier Horgan that British Columbia may face action from Saskatchewan if he is not interested in going beyond what the Premier has laid down as his particular uh, rules and laws as far as this is concerned. Would you uh, share with, uh, with us your thinking on that? And, uh, Premier, why does this pipeline extension have to be completed? Uh, that's well, just this, a, yeah. to, Sorry, Ray. Yeah, no, I, it's a fundamental question that has to be revisited occasionally. Why do we need it? Well, in Saskatchewan, why we need it is our, our direct impact to our economy uh, through the oil differential. Although we don't have a lot of product in that specific pipeline, by not having uh, this access to to the ports and to other markets for this product in Western Canada, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and to Manitoba to a lesser degree, um, we're, we're facing an oil differential where we sell our product to the United States at about a $20 discount, I think, last I checked, costing our provincial government uh, through royalties in this province over a hundred million dollars each and every year costing the economy in the province of Saskatchewan about 1.8 billion each and every year just to that differential so we need this access uh, to these to these ports through this pipeline and others so that we can lower that differential and, and get the maximum value for the product that we're exporting which is our focus uh, as a government in Saskatchewan and is to constantly uh, increase that that economic value that we have here so that's our interest in this pipeline and uh, and it, it's a bit I would say this isn't a discussion actually between Alberta and British Columbia or Saskatchewan or anything of that nature. Pipelines have always been under the federal jurisdiction. They were enshrined in the Constitution, pipelines, rail lines, ports in 1867. This is a federal government that has approved this pipeline and it should be built and it should move ahead immediately. So no reason to have this discussion. The Prime Minister has the right to make the decision. He's apparently made the decision, so get on with it. Absolutely. Um, um, the, the Premier of British Columbia has has no grounds to be making comments uh, on this on the, on this uh, on the approval of this project. It's been approved, and they and it should be built. If the situation continues as is, would you consider actually turning off the spigot for oil from Saskatchewan making its way to British Columbia? Well, Saskatchewan does send some energy products uh, that are utilized in British Columbia, um, and uh, Alberta would, would send a fair amount more. And I would say this, if, if Alberta is going to pass their legislation to turn the taps off, if you will, to British Columbia, um, the next logical place for British Columbia to come for that product is Saskatchewan, and, and we would pass legislation so that it wouldn't be accessible. Uh, this, this pipeline uh, should be built. It's unfortunate that it comes to a conversation such as this. Um, but, you know, at the crux of the matter is this is a national, this is a federal government decision and and they should they should move on this pipeline with whatever tools they have and I you know we'll talk about some of the tools that they're using in other areas where they actually don't have jurisdiction like such as carbon tax mm -hmm. but he, but here this begs the question our ports our rail lines our pipelines are, are under the national purview for a reason our nation was built on the construction of some of these projects 
and they've been very unifying projects for the nation of Canada. If a province such as British Columbia is able to stop one of these projects, it begs the question is, do we, do we still have a nation? You know, that question's been asked a number of times. It's a legitimate question to ask. It was asked when Quebec was edging and pushing for separation. It was uh, a legi- legitimate question then. It's a legitimate question now. Premier Mo, what's, what's, your, what's your view of Kinder Morgan's commitment to this pipeline now? They said May 31st. They have to be assured that British Columbia will not lay any opposition to the pipeline being built. Do you think, do you have some sense that they've emotionally checked out? Well, it's concerning, and, and it, it points to a, a growing trend of, of tens of billions of dollars of investment in our energy sector, um, which is one of the cleanest in the world, and we must always remember that. Being moved, uh, being moved from Canada to, in many cases, uh, into the United States or other areas of the world, and it's a very concerning trend with some of the policy decisions that we, that we have made, such as the approval of Kinder Morgan, but our, but our federal government isn't standing behind. And then there's other policy decisions as well, you know, things in the, in, in the way of carbon taxation and some of the uh, environmental uh, regulatory changes that are coming that are causing tens of billions of dollars to move uh, south of the border. And Kinder Morgan is just seems to be another, another casualty of some of these decisions that have been made. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Premier, on the issue of the carbon tax, which Mr. Trudeau insists the entire country is going to adopt, or he'll adopt it for them, um, I'd like your thoughts on that. And I remember speaking again with your predecessor, Mr. Wall, about that. And he said at the time, he'd had a conversation with Mr. Trudeau the day after he made this pronouncement and asked, has there been any economic impact study of the effects nationally of such a carbon tax? And the answer was no. And yet, I guess, maybe it was a roll of the dice. Maybe Mr. Trudeau stuck his finger in the air. I don't know. But he's decided we all need it. What is Saskatchewan going to do? And what what was that conversation like that you had with him a few weeks ago? <laughs> well, what the, the conversation was was uh, you know a reasonable conversation uh, where we both uh, I, I guess in in many ways agreed that it wouldn't be him and it wouldn't be myself that dis- made the decision on whether a carbon tax was going to be uh, charged on Saskatchewan industries, jobs, and families. It's going to be a judge uh, in in light of of uh, the federal government introducing their carbon backstop in an omnibus 550 page budget bill of which they said they would get rid of and they wouldn't let that that legislation stand on its own they included it with their entire uh, budget bill but and and so we will be launching our uh, our reference case to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal in the next number of weeks here I, the Saskatchewan people will see that uh, coming uh, in the very near future so we are a f- uh, much closer to actually um, taking this to court and taking our federal government to court for this, what is a failed policy. Uh, there's nowhere in the world where carbon tax has achieved what it's set out to do in reducing emissions. Um, what it does do is it moves jobs to other areas of the world that don't have a carbon tax. It reduces our competitiveness in our, our industries like agriculture, energy, mining, uh, which are our staple industries here in the province. Uh, it's not effective. It's not proving to be revenue neutral in, in provinces where it has been introduced. It's proving to be uh, a, a tax grab. And there, there is some hypocrisy in the federal government's uh, handling of Kinder Morgan, where they do have jurisdiction, versus how they are handling and, and attempting to force a carbon tax on provinces, which in the same 1867 const- constitution was, uh, was an area of responsibility that was ceded to the provinces at, at the same time as our rails, ports, and, uh, and pipelines were, were taking uh, as federal responsibility. doesn't seem to matter the Constitution when it comes to carbon tax. Uh, it just seems to me that there is a, there's a, there's a, 
uh, there's a better word than being fans of, but there's a buy-in that can be hugely emotional, I find, and really lacking any kind of um, deductive reasoning going on. When, when you think of, of what the carbon tax hasn't done, for example, in Australia in 2014, they decided to do away with a national carbon tax they'd had for a couple of years because they found it hurt families, it hurt business, it hurt the national economy. There was no reason to keep it, and it was gone. And it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't lower, it didn't lower emissions. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's all bad on the economic side, and it's all bad on the environmental side, which equals to me a, a failed policy and one that we should discontinue uh, looking at here, and, and, we, and we won't have uh, here in the province of Saskatchewan. So, um, you know, we look forward to, to the conversation that ultimately is going to be uh, in court on this, but it is a, uh, it's a failed policy. And I don't know why we would think it would work any better here in Canada. Premier, is there a sense, is there a feeling that Western Canada doesn't receive the respect, the due, the consideration that it really must have? Is there a sense that in the federal government does not have a, a true sense of what Saskatchewan and Western Canada really are most interested in and most in need of? I think there's a lack of respect at times for some of the industries that drive our Western Canadian economy and, in essence, uh, essentially drive our, our Canadian economy. And th- those industries are export-based industries, um, agriculture being one of them, but energy also being one of them. And we need to continue to recognize um, that we always need to do better. We're doing that in Saskatchewan. We've, we've, we've launched our, our climate change plan, a, a plan of prairie resilience, which is endorsed by by industries and corporations uh, in the mining sector, in the energy sector, and in the agriculture sector here in, pro- in the province. We're working with with our industries to, to do better, to reduce actual emissions. We're not working with them to see how much we can actually tax them and how much they can bear um, through a policy that, e- that essentially, you know, just simply doesn't work. So I, I worry about the respect in, in, in the lack of... Uh, effort being uh, provided by our federal government to ensure that we can get these these products to market, such as in the case of Kinder Morgan, where they have the jurisdiction, versus um, the, the lack of respect that they're, they're proving to these same industries um, on, on the taxation side, trying to enforce this carbon backstop on, on uh, well, in this case, our province, but I, I think you'll see other provinces coming on board as we, uh, as we launch our reference case, as this isn't just about a carbon, a carbon, imposing a carbon tax on Saskatchewan. This is about a federal government that's imposing their will in an area where they explicitly do not have the jurisdiction or the right to do so. And who's to say that in uh, in a number of years they don't use uh, the same techniques uh, that they're using here, like withholding infrastructure funding when it comes to the low carbon economy fund, which they are threatening to do in Saskatchewan's case, but will not do in the case of British Columbia in approving Kinder Morgan. They've introduced in their budget bill 109 million dollar carbon cops uh, 109 million dollars in funding for carbon cops to come out and ensure people are are uh, adhering to their backstop this this is uh you know a, a definite lack of respect for i would say not just western canada but for industries that drive the economy in western canada and our nation as a whole we have natural resources in this country which are significant to our financial well-being and if we look at the uh, if we look at the uh, the oil sands if we look at the need for pipelines if we look at the international markets that are available to us for canadian oil canadian oil products i've heard the number and uh, you, you probably are better at this than me have better information than i do but i've heard numbers as high as 50 60 70 million dollars a day being lost if we do not export our oil to markets that want it other than the United States, which may be artificially keeping 
their prices low by influencing various groups in Western Canada to fight the pipelines? Just, just in the energy sector alone. Uh, just by the oil differential that we have, by not being able to access markets out, aside from the United States. $1.8 billion a year just from that sector on current production in the province of Saskatchewan is being lost to our economy. Um, that is why we need to continually advocate for safe methods to get this product to port, which is pipelines such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We'd like to see the Energy East Pipeline as well so that we can replace some of the oil that's coming in from 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 areas of the world like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, that is produced at a much, much less ethical, um, in a much less ethical way, but also a much less sustainable way. We should never forget in this conversation around environmental sustainability, what we have already done in our industries, uh, I'll speak to Western Canada and Saskatchewan, but across our nation in agriculture, in mining, and in in our energy production, and forestry as well. We we are some of the most we produce some of the most sustainable products on earth, and we should we should never forget to tell people that. Premier, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. I hope you won't mind coming back. I will be back at your request. Thank you, sir. All the best. Take care, Roy. Scott Moe is the Premier of Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. So military action against Syria's Assad regime last night, as the U.S., the U.K., and France fired missiles into Syria. Now, the West uh, doesn't have to be concerned about possible reaction by Assad's protectors, Russia and Iran. And joining me on the program is Colonel Peter Mansour. He's the former executive officer to General David Petraeus during the, the surge in Iraq. His book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour is also a military history professor at uh, Ohio State University. Gentlemen, sir, thank you very much uh, for the time, as always. No question there'd be a response to the chemical weapons being used in Syria by the Assad regime. The United States, though, needed other nations to engage as well, in this case, France and the UK. Justin Trudeau verbally supported Donald Trump. Is, is that enough? Was, uh, has, the, has the point been made? Or can you make the point with these people? Well, it appears, for the moment at least, that the raid hit the sweet spot. That is painful enough to make Assad think twice about using chemical weapons again, uh, not so painful that it would cause uh, Russia to escalate hostilities, uh, which would be bad. So, uh, you know, we'll, it'll take some time to determine whether Assad got, gets the message. Of course, after last year's strike, he did uh, refrain from using chemical weapons for a time, but there were maybe a half a dozen instances of his use mainly of chlorine weapons since then. So um, we'll see if this strike is any more successful in preventing future attacks. How much of uh, this is necessary now because of the years of dithering by President Obama? He, he allowed al-Assad to, uh, or Assad to fortify himself in Syria and secure the support of Iran and Russia. Could a lot of this have been precluded had Premier Obama been or Prime Minister, or President Obama, one of those, pick one, uh, pres- <laughs> had President Obama been more more forceful? Well, it's interesting, because early in, in the Arab Spring, when uh, there were demonstrations in Syria, his own administration, uh, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, uh, Bob Gates as Secretary of Defense, and, and General David Petraeus as the CIA director, all recommended arming the Syrian opposition, which would have uh, made the opposition uh, stronger and also more um, in tune with uh, 
with uh, U.S. desires in the region. Uh, President Obama declined to do that. Uh, he did, however, set uh, a notorious red line that if uh, Assad used chemical weapons, he would retaliate. Uh, it was proven that Assad used chemical weapons, and President Obama did nothing. It was perhaps the biggest foreign policy mistake of his eight years in office. Uh, re- it um, obviously uh, showed Assad the green light for the use of chemical munitions in the war, and it reduced uh, U.S. credibility uh, damagingly on the world stage. Colonel Mansour, do you expect uh, the attack on Syria, on Assad, is going to be met by anything other than words uh, from Russia and Iran in the short and the longer term? Putin is saying it's a, he's quoted as saying it's an act of aggression. Yeah, I think the words have already come, so that's a that's a done deal. The question is, will they do anything more concrete to push push back? And I suspect that if Russia does something, it'll be um, more in the covert realm, perhaps some sort of cyber attack. Uh, of course, they're already in, interfering with elections in, in the United States and the other Western nations. They'll continue to do that. Uh, but I don't think what we'll, we'll see is uh, some sort of direct attack on U.S. forces embedded with uh, Kurdish and Syrian democratic militias in Syria itself. What do you expect from the other Middle Eastern nations now? This is, uh, this is another attack on Assad. He probably, I would imagine, he still has chemical munitions. He still has sort of an air force. And he's being supported by Russia and, uh, and Iran. What, uh, what do you expect from other nations in the region? Will they just keep their heads down or... Are they going to be a little more brave about this situation? No, I don't think you'll see uh, the regional powers doing anything other than what they've already been doing. Uh, they'll line up uh, with or against the United States based on who they support in the Syrian civil war. Mainly Iran will line up with Russia and Assad, and the rest of them will line up with the United States for the most part. Um, I don't think you'll see the nations in the region taking a, uh, a more forceful role to prevent Assad from consolidating his grip on power. Uh, no one really wants to be sucked into the, the tar pit of the Syrian civil war, uh, other than the two players that are already there, which is Iran and, and Russia. Mm-hmm. Is the Middle East just too chaotic now to engage in another significant Western military intervention? You know, I don't think there's any stomach for that, uh, not among the Western populace, not among the political leaders. I, I really think it's doubtful, given the outcome of the war in Iraq, which sucked in $1 trillion mm-hmm. and 160,000 troops for almost 10 years, 5,000 dead. And the outcome was such that it really didn't advance U.S. national security interests. I, I think it would be really unlikely uh, that an administration would um, would voluntarily uh, intervene with uh, lots of boots on the ground. I think the way forward is pretty much what it's been in the last few years, which is the use of advisors, the use of air power, and a much more lighter footprint. Uh, is the world the next question? I, I suppose has to be: Is the world less stable now than it might have been, even at the height of the Cold War? Terror organizations are spreading their tentacles. More widely with uh, North Africa, just one significant example. Um, what, what and where are your greatest concerns globally? Well, I think you're right. I mean, the, the bipolar distribution of power during the Cold War, ironically, uh, made 
uh, foreign policy much more stable. Or you, you either lined up with the Soviet Union or you lined up with the United States. But the, the boundaries of conflict were pretty clear. Um, it was deadly in certain circumstances, Korea, Vietnam, etc., but uh, it was predictable. Now you have a lot more actors. There's a, a diffusion of power to, to multiple uh, global powers. Uh, you have lots of non-state actors and terrorist groups and so forth. Um, and you have the possibility of, of nuclear war as well. So in terms of the hot spots, I would say the, the most dangerous, if not the most likely, uh, place where hostilities would break out is uh, on the Korean Peninsula. That would be a, a very, very deadly con- conflict. Um, and then, of course, the, the bubbling cauldron that it is the Middle East will continue, as well as Afghanistan, although um, we hate to news feed the, uh, the stakes are much lower uh, in terms of, of killed and, uh, and the human and the humanitarian crisis is really what uh, what affects the West with the waves of refugees flooding into Europe, for instance. So it could be uh, any place, any time, um, depending on the actors involved and how determined they are. The United States has almost a hundred percent track record of not predicting where it's going to fight. Uh, oh. You know it's. These wars creep up on uh, on us, and you know, before the Desert Storm, for instance, no one would have predicted been fighting in Kuwait. Uh, before the Iraq War broke out, no one, or before 9/11, no one would have predicted we would have been fighting in Afghanistan. So, uh, I think it's pretty tough to say with any kind of certainty this, you know, this place is where we're going to fight next. We have some likely candidates, the Korean Peninsula, for instance, but but no certainty. And uh, this question about about this country, Canada, what would the United States like to see from from Prime Minister Trudeau, and uh, and from Canada? Well, what uh, what 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 should our contribution consist of? Now you know we just bought a whole bunch of used F-18s from Australia that they didn't want anymore. So I anyway, I don't want to be too cynical. What uh, what, what would you like to see? What does the United States expect from Canada? Well, Canada is a valued uh, ally and a, and a close neighbor, of course, and I think Canada has a lot of soft power, uh, a lot of diplomatic uh, heft. It punches above its weight in that realm, and I think that's probably the, the most important thing that Canada can provide to the United States, where they see an alignment of interests, um, you know, the diplomatic support they give us in the United Nations and other forums in, in NATO, um, and in coalitions of, of the willing, if you will, uh, is really important, uh, probably more important than whatever military contribution they provide, although that can be significant as well. Um, the support of other nations can legitimate U.S. actions so that we're not just going it alone, uh, both militarily and diplomatically. Mm-hmm. After the Second World War, this country had the world's fourth largest navy which is quite amazing considering the population we had back then. It's always great speaking with you. Thank you so much, uh, Colonel Mansour. All the best to you. Roy, always a pleasure. Colonel Peter Mansour, he's a history professor at Ohio State University, former executive officer, colonel, for General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq, and his book is Surge, 
my journey with General David Petraeus and the remaking of the Iraq War. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Mark Zuckerberg testified before the, um, in some cases, octogenarian members of the uh, the Congress who asked some, I thought, reasonable questions, important questions to ask. Well, there were times when obviously they were generationally separate. But the issue is of such huge importance. We're going to talk about that meeting and Mr. Zuckerberg's testimony. Have a listen to this. We are, have made and are continuing to make changes to reduce the amount of no, data. Are you that- willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. And then there was... The senator from Illinois, Dick Durbin, who tried to impress on Mr. Zuckerberg the need for some private information to remain exactly that private. And there's some 87 million people and their information that was in play. Have a listen to that. Would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Uh, Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that may be what this is all about. And maybe that is what it was all about. Joining me is David Fraser, Internet security expert, lawyer, partner at McKenna Cooper in Halifax and the founder of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. David, uh, thank you as always for coming on the program and Speaking about these issues in language, even I can understand. Was that question that uh, that Senator Durbin asked one of the more relevant questions to be asked? Uh, certainly, I think it was on point for a senator to be asking in a, in an environment where many of the statements that are made in in something like that are intended to score political points and and maybe a little bit of a little bit of grandstanding. But it certainly does. Uh, kind of cut to part of the issue, which is how comfortable are people sharing their their information with uh, with other people uh, and outside of what they would probably consider to be their comfort zone, which I think is one of the key questions that has really come up in connection with all of this, uh, particularly when the revelations about Cambridge Analytica have shown a, a system that would allow the collection of information about friends of friends without those people being involved is one thing for somebody to choose to take a quiz now assuming that they're not lied to as as appears to be the case but take a quiz and provide their information to somebody that's their information and they get to choose whether or not to provide it uh... but having other people's information sucked up into that system without that person's involvement or choice that that to me is something that's uh, that's troubling and problematic Yeah, and you know sometimes people will find themselves in a hurry to sign something they want to get something done and then there's the, they have to sign here, sign here, initial there, initial there. And some of it has to do with privacy policies. Some of it has to do with company policies. Some of it has to do with information shared with third parties. And you don't really know what it's about, but you're in a hurry. You want to get out of there. You want to get the deal done, and then you sign it. And it's only later that you may find out that, whoa, uh, I should have read this. And so this is the this is the high-tech version of the paper contract. Um so, so uh, what did the congressional testimony of Mark Zuckerberg ultimately serve to provide? Did we get a real sense of just how much Cambridge Analytica had in its bank as far as private information of citizens is concerned? Well, I don't think it really had to do with the information that was disseminated during the questioning. 
Uh, I don't think, for at least for those who have been paying close attention uh, to social media and to Facebook for some time, and, and particularly these more recent re- revelations, there wasn't anything that was new that was learned. But I think that the significance of it really has to do with the fact that he was dragged in front of a congressional uh, committee for two full days uh, and was grilled. And um, it's pretty clear to me that that the um, unease that a large number of people have with what has been going on was clearly communicated. And it, I think it forces a, a bit of a, a rethink whether or not that actually happens, because, of course, Facebook has been admonished for certain practices in the past and has kind of half apologized and have repeatedly said that they need to do better. Um, and certainly, I, I think incrementally they have, but whether or not this is the tipping point that will force them to make significant changes, I think it probably will be. I, I don't think they've ever faced this level of scrutiny. We, we not only have this congressional investigation, we have the, the Information Commissioner of the United Kingdom uh, pursuing this strongly. We have uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, as I understand, and a number of attorneys general in the States. We have the Australian Privacy Commissioner. We also have our Privacy Commissioner, federally and in British Columbia, who are going after this. So certainly they are hearing it from all sides. And uh, this, the, the two days of testimony may be over, but these investigations are not, and they're going to continue for some time. And I think we're probably going to see a number of very specific recommendations, if not demands, made to Facebook by those regulators uh, in order to uh, to change their practices and, and to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. I received an email from a friend, and his, his point was, Facebook is so big, so powerful, so well-connected, that it really is immune. It'll be on the uh, hot seat for a couple of days, and then they'll go back to doing things the way they've always done them, or maybe they'll adjust things a little bit, but they are essentially immune. And then I got to thinking about Brian Acton, the co-founder of WhatsApp, and other big tech names, were urging users to hashtag delete Facebook on Twitter. And I was wondering, if is there any stomach for this sort of action by the general public? Um, social media are addictive, and maybe to billions of people daily. So I guess two-part question. Is Facebook essentially immune, and would there be any appetite, regardless of what has happened, that to, that to create the need for these congressional uh, hearings? Is there enough of an appetite to uh, back off Facebook and maybe other social media platforms out there, or is it just, you know, it's it's an addiction? Well, certainly, and, and that's one of the things that's going to be scrutinized, is the, I think, is the addictive nature of these uh, services. There certainly have been a number of people speaking about the fact that a lot of the information that's collected about how people use these use these services and applications is intended to make them as addictive as possible. Now, they don't use that sort of terminology. They they assume that, hey, the more time people spend on Facebook, the more that's an indication of how much they like it, rather than the kind of the, the kind of uh, people who are just kind of looking for likes and, and get some sort of positive feedback reinforcement loop. Um, I think it would be difficult for, certainly I wasn't prepared to delete my Facebook account. I still find I get something of value from it in terms of the, the connections that I have with friends near and far. Um, but certainly it's prompted thinking about this, and it, is, it has become, some people have characterized it like a utility that, uh, that and, and perhaps needs to be regulated in such a way. I'm not in favor of that, or, or to be maybe somehow turned into some sort of public good or, or taken over by government, for example. And, and I'm not in favor of that simply because I can't imagine... Would it improve things if, if Trump's government had <laughs> had control over Facebook and had control over Twitter, for example? 
certainly it makes sense to regulate the heck out of them so that they have to be clear and transparent about what their practices are and to require them to give consumers as much choice as possible about what information is, is collected. I think one thing that, that we might see that, uh, that seemed somewhat impossible a while ago is perhaps an ad-free version of Facebook where you, you pay for it instead of being presented with, with ads. They, mm-hmm. would still be, they would still be profiling you in order to determine which friends updates to show you, etc., but, uh, but it wouldn't be for advertising purposes. But would that really fix the problem? Because part of the issue with respect to pani- po- political manipulation has been advertisements, but a significant amount has to do with uh, groups and pages that were feeding updates that were essentially misinformation or fake news, whatever you want to call it, uh, that were outside of the, the advertising realm. So there, there certainly are, are multiple dimensions to this, but yeah, Facebook has gotten... Uh, pretty enormous, and and as a result, I think they can expect that this is just the the first taste of the significant scrutiny that their operations are going to face around the world. You know, you talk about the uh, the the advertising aspect of it, and the, the power that that has, the power of suggestion, which we uh, know was transmitted to the political arena, or at least to the to the voters who are going to be active in the political arena. A few weeks ago, I decided I had a little time on my hands, so and I've always been a car aficionado, and I, so I went back, and I went online, and I Googled a whole bunch of cars that I'd owned from being a kid on forward. Well, what that did was explode, and you can see what's coming, car ad after car ad after car ad after auto trader, and a whole series. Here, here's, here's seven cars all lined up, ready for me to look at, and what it did was, eventually, at first it was annoying, and then it got interesting. So I thought, you know, they they placed the hook and they pulled it. I'm out of the water. Yep, and and online advertising is what makes the internet free for most people, other than kind of paying your your cable company for your for your connection. Uh, but in fact, you do have some choices, and and I think this is one of the things that uh, that's a bit of a challenge. So much of the of the online advertising stuff happens kind of behind the scenes, and so you don't really. Uh, it's not obvious to people how how it all works. But you'll probably notice that most ads these days. Uh, have a little triangle on them that refer to uh, something called the Your Ad Choices program. And so they will explain to you, in in many cases, why you're seeing that ad. But you can also go to youradchoices.com, and there's a, a Canadian equivalent, and you can opt out of targeted advertising. You'll still see ads. They won't be as relevant for you, so it won't be that uh, that you'll be seeing a whole bunch of car ads following you around for the next little while. But you do have some, some choice about that. But the reality is that, that the reason why... Facebook is free is uh, is because of the ads. The reason mm-hmm. why so, so many of the other things we use online uh, is, is, are free to us is because of those ads. Now, it would be interesting to see what what the model would look like for Facebook to go ad free, for example, um, and how much uh, how much they would have to get from each user to do that. Um, that would at least give us some insight into how much <laughs> how much money they get from showing these ads to us on a regular basis. Yeah, I just found it really telling that here I was for just maybe an hour, a little while anyway. Checking out uh, various cars and uh, that I'd owned and see where they were available, if, or if they were still available, and and I was just inundated, inundated for days and days and days with all sorts of ads for cars. Some of most of which I hadn't expressed any interest in. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. If uh, if David, we go back to the beginning of Mark Zuckerberg arriving to be present for this congressional hearing for two days. 
what what would you how would you have defined the objective what would you have wanted to see come out of that ultimately in language that people can lay people can understand and how much of that was accomplished and how much of it was just completely missed well on, on one hand i think probably the intent should have been to get as much information as possible about what was going on and what the what the intent of facebook is from a, in a big picture sense that's why you talk to the talk to the ceo i think also the 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 other purpose was in order to essentially make a, a bit of a spectacle and and put him put him on the spot i think that second objective was accomplished the first one really wasn't and i think it, it was in part a problem with the just the setup that the congressman or or each one of them only had five minutes for their question and their answer and we're talking about something that is really quite complicated and something that is really quite nuanced and and one and so often these things don't lend themselves to a five-minute exchange on a particular topic and then you move on to another another questioner and so in in, in that regard I, I don't think that uh, that it, it was it was even set up to be able to accomplish the the, the broad fact-finding investigation at least in any sort of deep way uh, we, we got some information in a, in a relatively superficial manner however so what has to what has to happen now? What has to be accomplished now? So we've got the midterm elections coming up. We'll come back to election uh, affecting elections. We've got our Canadian uh, elections coming up. What has to be accomplished uh, now going forward and fairly quickly? I'm not sure how much will be accomplished globally and how much will be accomplished very very quickly. So, for example, for in in Canada, um, the political parties are outside of any any realm of regulation when it comes to personal information about individuals that they collect use or disclose so there's there's not anything that's that is going to put the brakes on that sort of activity uh, as we're looking down the barrel at an Ontario election a, a federal election in, in the next year um, and so I'm, I'm concerned that not a whole lot will change because on one hand we're not just dealing with advertising we're also dealing with uh, other forms of, of communication where you get a, a whole bunch of trolls or a whole bunch of people who uh, may in fact be in, in <laughs> boiler rooms in Russia who are sending out stories and then re, rebroadcasting them, retweeting them, reposting them, and, and disseminating. So even if you were to uh, put a strong limit on political advertising on these platforms, there are still other ways that, uh, that things, can be, uh, things can be done. Also in the United States, where Facebook is of course headquartered, they have a much stronger sense of freedom of expression than we have in Canada. And so in Canada, we can have reasonable regulation of, of advertising and we can have reasonable regulation of, of political speech. Um, but again, it has to be reasonable. It's, it's much less susceptible to regulation in the United States. So I think Facebook is, is going to be, simply by the nature of being a global company, is going to have to try to adjust its practices for each jurisdiction where it's carrying on business. And, and already it was looking at having to do that because of a significant change in European privacy law that's coming into effect in the next month. Um, but uh, whether or not they can slam on the brakes or make a course correction before the Ontario election, for example, and the, there are other kind of significant elections that are taking place around the world in the next 12 months, I'm not that optimistic. And I think it will continue to be a whack-a-mole sort, of, uh, sort of endeavor. But we have seen some progress. So a number of social platforms have uh, implemented uh, algorithms to try to detect kind of bot accounts and troll accounts. Uh, Russia today has been removed from Twitter and from Facebook, I believe. 
um, for the the kind of dissemination of uh, of incorrect news. Um, so certainly, I think progress has been made, but is it enough to to give me confidence that uh, the next Canadian election will not be subject to manipulation? I don't have that confidence. No, and, and then you ask yourself whether all the social media platforms have really drifted away from what the initial intent was for them. Uh, Twitter delivers lots of anger. Uh, reading on Wired uh, magazine, Instagram has more fake news than Donald Trump can tweet about. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's the size of this issue is, is really becoming apparent. David, always great speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Anytime. You take care. Bye-bye. David Fraser from McKenna's Cooper in Halifax, privacy law specialist and the founder of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. Have a look at that. It's really quite fascinating. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.